Morning, church family. Have you ever looked up at the stars and wondered what your place in the universe is? Unfortunately, Dallas has really bad light pollution, so I'm doubting most of you probably weren't able to do that last night or maybe maybe pretty recently. Um, It's not something we get to get to do very often, but when when you do get to do it, when you get to drive out and maybe into the country or you travel to another city and get to look up at the night sky and see all the stars, it, it gives you a different perspective on life. King David often found himself camped out of the wilderness under the stars. And when it was probably during one of these times that he wrote Psalm 8, which is what we're going to be meditating on this morning. And as he, he wrote Psalm 8, he was meditating on what his place in the universe was. When he saw the vastness of space and kind of his own smallness, he meditated on who God was and what, what his place was in, in this vast universe. And this morning, I want to take some time and meditate with you on what exactly David saw as he, as he thought about God, he thought about the universe that God had created and all the stars that he saw. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Psalm 8. Follow along as I read. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. My thesis this morning is that we are stewards of a majestic God. Look with me in this first verse here. We see David cry out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word majestic refers to a king. It refers to something that is royal. In ancient civilizations, oftentimes, the things of the king would be marked out. So the king would have special clothes that he would wear, special food that he would would eat, a palace that he would live in. It was marked out. It was separate. It was different. It was majestic. And you can immediately recognize it. This is something that belongs to the king, not something that belongs to the commoners. And this is the word that David uses to describe God's name in all the earth. This is clearly something that is set apart. This is clearly something that is reserved for something that is kingly, for state, that is something that is stately. And this is fascinating to hear David, who is a king, saying this. He's saying, this belongs to the king. This is something that is above us, that is, that is royal. The other way that we use the word majestic is oftentimes in describing mountains because mountains rise up from the earth and they dominate the landscape and they shape the landscape around them. You can't ignore the mountain. It is, it is there, it is dominating the scenery, and it has dominion over that part of the earth. And so this is another way that David is kind of trying to communicate to us. This is something that can't be missed. When he looks up at the night sky and he sees the glory of God in creation, he says, you can't miss this. You can't miss how majestic, how big, how vast, how glorious is God's name in the earth. And he sees this in the heavens. Look at the end of verse 1 and then verse 3. You have set your glory above the heavens, 
And then again in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So David is meditating on the stars and on outer space. And he's, he's trying to grapple with, with the heavens. Why did God create the stars? Why did he fill the, the sky with stars? Why did he put the moon up there? You know, what's, what's the purpose of the moon? You know, we can kind of think scientifically, oh, it affects gravity and tides. But no, why did God put the moon up there? Why did God fill the heavens with stars? And, you know, as we've discovered more and more technologies, one of the benefits is that we've been able to probe these stars. And we've realized that there's more planets out there than we originally thought. The ancient people could see two or three of them. They could maybe see Saturn and Jupiter. But as if we've looked out further and further in space, we've seen more and more suns and more and more stars. And those stars have planets and asteroids just like our solar system. And then past that is even more galaxies with more suns and stars and asteroids and all these other things happening. Planets with different chemicals and compounds and atmosphere types and Space seems so vast and interesting, we can barely scratch the surface of it. We can barely touch the moon, much less we're never going to be able to touch the sun because it's so hot. But we're, we're, we've got all these galaxies out there. Are we ever even going to reach them? And we have to ask ourselves this question as Christians, why did God create them? Why did God create planets orbiting suns and galaxies outside our own galaxies that we're never going to see or be able to observe? Why would God do this? Why, why would God create so many things out there that we're never even going to see? We're just going to see the faintest light, and only if the, the, the light on earth is completely pitch dark so that we can see even to the sky, into the Milky Way. I think the answer is quite simple. God created it because he can, because he's God. God is God who creates everything. He's a God without limits. And when we look up to the sky, God wants us to be reminded that his name, his being, is, a, is limitless. There is nothing that he cannot do. A powerful computer can run software to generate a landscape or to generate an, an, a planet maybe and populate it with details, and it might run for a few minutes and slowly generate some, some details and you know, maybe artificially draw a map. And if you have a really powerful computer and you run it for a really long time, you can run a lot of details into that map and create a background for a movie maybe or for a game. God in Genesis speaks a word and the stars fill the sky. The galaxies spring into existence. There's no God sitting there and having to draw up planet by planet and put it in a place. God speaks and the sky is filled with stars to show us that he is limitless in power. And there's a beauty to that, and there's an awe to that. There's a smallness that that brings to us that David feels here. But I want to encourage you as an application here. When we think about the limitless nature of God creating the, the galaxies and the universe, it's a reminder to us that God is not limited by power or by time. God didn't have to fly around creating galaxies. He spoke and all of the galaxies were in existence. So when you pray to God, pray to God realizing that this is the God who's able to sustain galaxies in his hands. There's nothing you can pray that is too great for God. There's, God is not distracted by trying to maintain planets and different things going on in the universe and he can't hear you. God is a God who hears all of our prayers. He can act on all of our prayers. There's not a limit. This is, this is so important for us as, as people. As, as we're praying and engaging with God, 
We should remember that the God of the, who is able to create galaxies is the God who's able to answer every prayer of every Christian on this planet at once. There, there's no limit. There's no cue. There's no, okay, I got my prayer in today, and now I got to wait for tomorrow, and then I can have one more prayer again tomorrow. We can pray without ceasing. We can believe in God boldly. We can understand that the God who can create galaxies in an instant is a God who can answer all of our prayers, a God we can trust. And I want you to catch one more thing. Look how David addresses the Lord in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. It's not just that our creator is vast and powerful and amazing, but he's ours. He's our Lord. He wants to be in a relationship to us. It's not just there goes a majestic king, but there goes my majestic king. That is my king. This is my Lord, and I am in relationship with him. And David starts from this point of us being in relationship with God. Look with me now at verse 2. Having seen the vastness of space, the vastness of God's ability, we see that out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now, out of the mouth of babies and infants, and on a very surface level, what this could practically mean is it's often babies and infants and small children who are the first to point out the beauties of God's creation. It's small children who remind us sometimes to stop and to look and to see how beautiful the world we've been given is, how beautiful the animals are, how beautiful the sky is, how beautiful the moon is. We can walk past things a a dozen times, a hundred times, and forget how beautiful the earth that we've been put on is. But if you spend time with the small children, they'll bring you a, a rock that's exciting. They'll bring you a stick that's exciting. They'll bring you... Uh, They'll point to a bird and say, look, Dad, birds. And they'll remind you, look at this beautiful thing that God has created. And they'll slow you down and remind you. And there's there's a great gift in children and in spending time around children and listening to children just marvel and enjoy God's creation. But I think there's more even to this verse than just that. If it was just that, that would be amazing. But there's more to it. I'm reminded in this verse of Judges 6, 14 through 16. You see, in the Old Testament, after God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, they had, begun to, they had begun to follow the false gods that he had told them not to follow. And the Midianites had enslaved the people of Israel. And God comes to Gideon. And listen to what, 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 uh, what God says to Gideon and Gideon's response in Judges 6, 14 through 16. And the Lord turned to him, Gideon, and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And and Gideon says, God, I'm the weakest man in the weakest family of the weakest clan in the weakest tribe in a nation that can't even stay out of slavery. Why would anybody want me? Why would anybody listen to me? I am so weak and helpless. No one cares about me, and no one ever will care about me. And God says, no, I care about you, and I'm going to use you to rescue my nation and protect my people. You are the one that I'm going to pour out. My grace upon and my power is going to be through you, Gideon. And this is a beautiful reminder that God delights in using weak people. And if you feel weak this morning, if you feel tired or burned out, exhausted or stressed, know that God delights in using weak people. If the most you can accomplish is a cry of a baby, then God can use that. God can empower you. God can use you in times of weakness. Look with me also in the New Testament at Matthew 21, 14 through 16. 
jumping ahead in, in the story of the Bible here. In Matthew 21, 14 and 16, Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has just taken place. People are crying out, Hosanna. And Jesus is riding up to the temple, the temple that is supposed to be the meeting place between God and his chosen people. And do you know what he sees? He sees a temple that has been turned into a tourist trap, a place for religious pilgrims to come and philosophize and to buy souvenirs, to, to buy and to trade and to be part of uh, a religious experience outside of the one that was set up in the, that God had set up for his people. The scribes, people selling pigeons, and the, the Pharisees and the, 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 the Sadducees and the scribes are all finding new ways to tax people and to be a burden on the people, doing everything except worshiping God. And so Jesus drives these people out. He overturns the tables. He throws out the pigeon sellers. And listen to what, what it says here in Matthew 21, 14 through 16. What happens next is important. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to them, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you not read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. God's temple, God's place of meeting is supposed to be a place where the lame, the weak, the broken find healing, find rest. And the children and the broken cry out to God, cry out to Jesus and worship him. Crying out, Hosanna to Jesus. Worshiping Jesus. This is what God's place of worship is meant to be. And you can see here that the, the chief priests and the scribes are offended by this. They're offended by God being worshipped in his own house. They wanted to turn this place into a place of profit, a place of manipulation, a place where they could kind of build their brand and score some points with Rome and get their reputation. And Jesus says, no, this is a place of healing. This is a place where the weak gather to be made whole, to be restored and to worship me. We see this beautiful picture in the temple here. And this should be a good reminder to us as we gather in our own church. The church is to be a place where souls are healed where we worship God together with our whole being. It's not a place where we come to, to network or to build our brand or to find ways to you know, make friends and have a social life. This is where we come together to seek to, to build and heal our, have our own souls healed and to help be a part of the healing of other people. And most importantly, to cry Hosanna to the Son of David, to worship the Christ who has saved us. We see this beautiful picture here. Uh, as Jesus references Psalm 8. So turn back with me, if you would, to Psalm 8. So David is looking at the stars. He sees that God loves and uses babies. He uses children. He uses people who are weak. But he still has to ask that question. What? He says here, what in, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Why does God care about us? Why is God using us? Why does God, why does God want to be engaged with us? What's so special about us? What, what is it that's, that's capturing God's imagination? If he's got endless galaxies and black holes and asteroids and, and sunsets on a thousand worlds, why is he interested in ours? Why is he watching us? What is, what is it about us that captures God's attention? 
And we see here his answer. And in his answer, there's a bit of a mystery. So listen for the mystery here. He says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. Now, the word here for, you may have in your translation the heavenly beings, or if you have a different translation, you might have, have the word angels here. This word heavenly beings is not the normal word for angels, and it's not the normal, word, uh, normal name for God either. It's, it's a little ambiguous, and it's somewhat between the two. So sometimes translations will take it one way or the other. And I think there's a couple reasons for this. And some of this goes back to what John has been teaching us in Genesis. You see, all of the pagan societies around the nation of Israel, especially the Egyptians, but the Babylonians and these other societies, all believed that the creator god or gods had also had lesser gods that they had created, that there was this court of lesser gods, and the lesser gods had dominion over the earth, and they're the ones to be feared and worshipped. And they set up these, these pantheons and these heavenly beings that would be ruling over the earth, and you know, they had to pay homage to this whole pantheon of different deities. And this was kind of the culture that Israel had been thrust into. And David, David is kind of subtly jabbing at that and saying, no, there's not a, this, this heavenly court does not have dominion over the earth. Instead, man has been given dominion over the earth. We know the, the command in, in the book of Genesis is for man to have dominion over the animals. And he's, we'll talk about the animals here in a minute. But there's this important picture that God, our creator, has given dominion of the earth, not to the angels, but he's given the dominion of the earth to us. We have, we have a place of stewardship over the earth. So that's, that's part of what's, what's happening here. But I want, you, I want you to catch the mystery here in verse, in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have made him. There's, there's a problem here with this verse. Because you see, we see God, God is majestic, he is high, there's nothing above God. And then we see the angels who are immortal, who are sinless, who are serving in God's presence. And then just under them, we see us who have been given dominion over the earth, over God's creation, and who have been made in God's image. So who is this him? Who could him be referring to? Because whoever this him is has been made lower, meaning he started above and is now lower than the angels. Who could possibly have been above the angels and is now below the angels, receiving glory and honor? Who could that possibly be referring to? So mysterious, right? Uh, Obviously, yes, this is referring to Jesus, but I want you to look with me. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. As a, as a kid, I loved reading mysteries. And you'd read, the, you'd read a short mystery, and then it would say, well, who do you think did it? And then you'd turn to the back of the book to find the answer. So turn with me to the back of the book to find the answer. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjugation under his feet. There's the mystery. Now in putting everything in subjugation to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjugation to him, but we, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. There's our answer. Crowned with glory and honor. There's glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what David is doing here is he's prophesying that there's more to this picture. There's more to, to our place and our understanding of God than just God has given dominion over the earth. 
That's true, but there's more to that story. Because him, Jesus, who has been made lower than the angels by becoming a man and taking on flesh, dying a, a sinner's death, having lived a perfect life, in his death, he receives glory and honor. He has been, become a rescuer. And he receives glory and honor because he has succeeded. He has completed his mission for us. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26, which was read earlier. This passage is, explains it even further to us. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. I'll read it again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes to the end who delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. There's the beginning of these enemies. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Remember the enemies in the, the second verse? The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjugation under his feet. And we see again this, this, this prophecy in Psalm 8 has been fulfilled. And that the glory and honor that has been won by Christ, the him who has become our glory and honor, is not just the glory and honor for Christ, but it's the glory and honor that we get to partake of as we are found in Christ. As we trust in Christ, as we give our lives to Christ, we also partake in the glory and honor of him who has rescued us. Him who has for a time been made lower than the angels. And this is the, the beauty of the gospel revealed that is, that is kind of almost hidden as a mystery here in Psalm 8. And it's, it's a beautiful thing for us to, to see the, that David is beginning to grapple with this, this picture of the rescuer coming to us, the one who will win glory and honor for all of his people, not just for himself. Now look with me back at Psalm 8, because David doesn't end there. David goes on with these next few verses and says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, this is not saying that Jesus' mission was to rescue all of the animals, the birds, and the fish. That's obviously not what's being said here. What is being said here, what is being referenced and alluded to here, is the original command given to Adam to have stewardship over the earth, to have dominion over the earth, and to have dominion over the animals. So David is referencing here our original mission from God that we see in Genesis 3 and that John will be preaching on soon. So we see this, this command that's being referenced here, to have dominion over the work of your hands, referring to the earth, and having put all these things under our feet, we have, we have an obligation to the animals and to, to creation as a whole. We are, we are stewards of this earth. Now, I've been using this word steward, and I want to really take some time and unpack this word, because I think it's a beautiful word. St a steward is somebody who speaks or acts on behalf of somebody else. So a king has riches and glory and land, and then he assigns stewardship to his lords, to his house chamberlain, people who are in charge of spending his money, people who are in charge of you know, making sure the kingdom is run or in an organized manner. That's what a steward would be, somebody who speaks on behalf of somebody else. 
in, in modern times in my own life, I, I work in advertising. And uh, I, my clients give me money, and I steward their money and spend it in various channels to help build, make, make a profit for them. It's not my money that I spend, it's their money that I spend. So I'm given lots of money, and then I go out and spend it and seek profit for my clients. That's my, that's my job as a steward. And, and this, this picture of I have authority and I have power that is not invested from my own self. This isn't my money. This isn't my power. This isn't my authority. But that which has been entrusted in me is so important to understand as we grapple with our place before God. God has given us stewards of the earth. So we didn't create the earth, but we are in charge of the earth. We are to see the earth taken care of. Now, this dominion, this stewardship, has both responsibilities and rewards. Now, how many people got up this morning and fed their flocks before they came to church? I'm guessing not many people in this room have sheep or cattle. I have a bunch of cats, so I feed my cats. But I don't, my livelihood, thankfully, doesn't depend on cats. It's just I feed them because I like them, and my daughters and my wife think they're cute, and I think they're cute too. But for David, being in an agrarian society, he understood this stewardship of the earth in a way that was very, very pal pal like palpable because he understood that God had entrusted to him in, in parts of his life sheep, literal sheep that he had to care for. And it took hard work to take care of them, but by taking care of them, he got the rewards. He got clothing from their wool. He got, got to eat their meat. And he got the rewards and blessings that came with being the steward of the earth. And this is what, what David is thinking about here, is God has given me responsibilities on the earth as, as a as a steward of the earth, and now, of course, as a king, he has responsibilities again as a king to shepherd and lead his people. But we also see that this isn't the end of the story because this isn't the only mission that we've been given. You see, the stewardship of the earth was the first thing that was given to Adam. But in Christ, as we partake of his glory and honor, we have again been entrusted to become stewards. We are now stewards of the Bible and, more importantly, stewards of the gospel. We have been entrusted with God's good news. He has saved us for a purpose so that we can take the truths of God, that we can take the name of God and spread it to the whole earth. And so we see that this, this passage is fulfilled as it reminds us of our stewardship of the earth. As, as we see the glory of God revealed in Christ, we should also see our stewardship transformed and enhanced as we become stewards now of the gospel. And just as being a steward of the earth comes with responsibilities as well as rewards, being a steward of the gospel, having dominion in, the, in God's kingdom, has both responsibilities and rewards. So we, we have to work, to work out our faith with fear and trembling, to understand the scriptures better, to share the gospel with those around us, to see people dis discipled, to, to gather together and encourage one another, and to do the work of, of the ministry that is laid before our feet. And as we do these things, just as there are rewards for caring for animals, there are rewards for, for living in the kingdom of God and, and stewarding the gospel well. As we grow in our faith, we grow in our hope, in our joy, our peace, our understanding of our relationship being restored with God. And that gives us that hope and that joy. And as we, as we live in light of our adoption, which we talked about in Sunday school this morning, and understanding that we are now brothers and sisters and heirs with Christ, we get to enjoy having a family, having the fellowship of a family around us. And it's a beautiful and wonderful gift that comes with being a steward of God. 
and being found in God's kingdom. And you see here David ends, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He ends where he starts. And he ends this, I think, to, to remind us that this is the good news that we spread to the nations. That the Lord, the great Lord who created all of the universe, is our Lord. He's our king. He's not some, some force out there far away in a distant galaxy who doesn't care or observe us. He's our Lord in relationship with us, who has sent Jesus, his only begotten son, to rescue us, to redeem us, to make us his people, so that his majestic name may be, may be known throughout the earth. Yes, the stars point to how beautiful and powerful God is, but how will the nations know? How will our friends know? How will our family know how good and powerful God is? The, the rescue and relationship is available unless we spread the gospel, unless we tell them the good news. And so we see here this picture, this obligation, this stewardship of the gospel as we take the good news to all the nations. And we share the name of God and that the Lord is our Lord. Go ahead and pray with me. Oh Lord, you are our Lord and your name is majestic in all the earth. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Thank you that we get to be stewards of the gospel. Thank you that we get to find our identity, not in ourselves and in what we can and can't do, but in you, who is unchangeable, who is everlasting. Thank you, God, that we get the great opportunity to steward your word. Help us to be faithful to read our Bibles, faithful to praise you, faithful to pray, knowing that you're a God who hears our prayers. Help us to be good stewards of your truth. Thank you, Lord, for for all that you've done for us. And thank you, Lord, for Jesus and his beautiful work on the cross and that we get to share in his glory and honor. In the blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.